Hey guys, we're so glad you're tuning into the Apex Students Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Apex Students, and we pray that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus. Every once in a while, I get real excited about a series, and this is one of those series, just so you know, if, uh, if I, um, sometimes I just, you know, I might preach long, I might get wound up. That's where we're at right now, so. I love television. Same. That is how I'm beginning tonight. <laughs> I love TV. Um, when given the choice between like TV and music, I will always pick TV. Movies, maybe less, but typically like music is not on my radar. I want to watch uh, TV. Since becoming an adult, I started watching TV in a more like critical, with a more critical eye. Uh, I have less time, so I need to make sure the time that I give to my TV is for good TV only, right? No bad TV anymore. And um, it's gotten me thinking a lot about like what makes a good movie, what makes good TV. So I think a lot about story, and a lot of what we do up here as you know a, a communicator on stage um, has a lot to do with story as well. And when you focus, when you like study story that much, you start to notice that they're like aren't that many stories. <laughs> like, it's all basically the same or just a couple variations. Like, somebody has to prove something or discover themselves or avenge someone or save the world, right? That's like, that's about it. That's like all the stories there are. Um, and when you start to notice these patterns, you, you'll notice a lot of different patterns and you'll start to notice how often people are motivated by the death of a loved one. I know it's a little dark, but stick with me. All the time, whether maybe it's the beginning of the movie or like the series, like right before the season finale, um, somebody is motivated by the death of a loved one. Writers love to kill somebody off that the main character loves to motivate them, right? To give them that extra excitement to do, to move down their journey. Um, and it's their grief and their love that like motivates them into the rest of the story. Now, you've seen this in your favorite stories, I'm sure. Black Panther in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the first time we see Black Panther um, is in Ca uh, Captain America, Civil War, and we see his father, King T'Challa. Nope, uh, King T'Chaka. Sorry? Yeah, I heard you make fun of me. You looked down because you didn't think I heard you. <laughs> his dad, um, he dies in explosion, right? And then the rest of that movie, he is motivated by his grief and his love for his father. Um, you've got Spider-Man and Uncle Ben in most Spider-Verses. Um, that's how that goes. Simba in The Lion King, right? The death of his father. Spoiler alerts, all kinds of them today. Um, his father dies, and then he is first motivated to run from everything, right? Put his past behind him. And then later, he comes back all motivated by his love for that, you know, that justice. It's motivated by justice for his fallen father. As recently as Dune, uh, among other things, a surprise attack on his family motivates Timothée Chalamet. Um, Star Wars, this is a, a popular one. Any Star Wars nerds in the room? Probably a bunch. Um, spoiler alert for the 1977 film. Uh, Luke's aunt and uncle are killed by the Imperials, which motivates him to Jedihood. Is that true? Yeah, no, it's a big one. It's, it's pretty early. Um, and again, if you're looking for this kind of stuff, you're going to see it. You're probably thinking of like your favorite story or movie or you know, book or whatever right now. And you're going to find it in TV shows, in poems, in songs, everywhere there's a story, this kind of stuff. It's, it's a, a common motivation for storytellers. And there's a reason for that. It's a really good motivator to kill somebody the main character loves, right? When life and death are at stake, it's a big deal. Somebody loses someone they love, and it drives them to an extreme. We've talked about heroes so far, but the death of a loved one also is the motivation for Harvey Dent, Two-Face in the Dark Knight, for Lotso from Toy Story 3, um, 
for the olds in the room, Reverend Shaw Moore from Footloose. Any Footloose fans? Yes, I'm here with you. Just a couple. Uh, and back to Star Wars, right? Anakin, like Darth Vader, like the, one of the most notorious villains in history, motivated by the death of his mother, changes everything, changes the course of his life into being one of the biggest bad guys ever. The death of a loved one motivates people to extreme lengths. Love in general does that, right? Love motivates us to do really extreme things. From singing grams to promposals, we do some really dumb things for love. We are willing to look foolish for love. Love drives people to action, sometimes to really extreme action. I want to teach you a Hebrew word today. Is that okay? Occasionally, there's a Hebrew word that captures my attention. Would you say the word chesed? All the best Hebrew words have that sound in them. This is a good one. Say it again. Chesed. It's, it's fun. Now, <laughs> don't throw up. Um, this is the Hebrew word for love, right? Greek gets a lot of attention for its love words. This is the Hebrew word for love, chesed. And um, it can mean, it's like a big, broad word in Hebrew. And so it can mean like people loving each other, God's love for people, our love for God. It has a really broad meaning. But this is like the bottom line about chesed is that it drives people to action. This is a love that drives to action. It's so big and so powerful that it demands you do something about that love. All throughout scripture, we see God talk about his chesed for us. In Isaiah, it says, for the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. God's chesed will remain. It's unconditional. It's unearned and it's big. It's powerful. And that's the love God has for us. Now, we're in a series called Ruth, and in this series, we're, we're talking about the book of Ruth from the Old Testament and uh, exploring Ruth's story, and three times in the book of Ruth, we see this Hebrew word chesed. If you're wondering why we're talking about Hebrew, the, the Bible is originally not written in English. We translated it to English. The Old Testament, specifically for Ruth, from Hebrew, and there are three times in the book of Ruth where we see Chesed. The first one is in Ruth 1.8, if you remember what happened last week, where Naomi thanks Ruth and Orpah for their, the, the chesed that they have shown her. The second one is in Ruth 2.20. Chapter 2 is what we're looking at today. It's at the end of the chapter, so we're going to get there later. But don't forget about chesed in the meantime. We'll come back to it. So last night, last, last week, last two weeks ago, huh? What a journey we've been on. Two weeks ago, we talked about Ruth chapter 1, and we met... We met a whole cast of people, Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, their sons, Malon and Kilion, their sons' wives, Ruth and Orpah. And of those six people that we meet in chapter one, three die and one takes off. So we're left with Naomi and Ruth at the end of Ruth chapter one. So Naomi is an old widow. Um, she has no people. She's in a foreign land in Moab. And Ruth is her daughter-in-law who is so devoted to Naomi that when Naomi decides, I'm going to go back to my homeland in Bethlehem, Ruth decides to go with her and watch over her, take care of Naomi, her mother-in-law. Now, when Naomi's family left Bethlehem, right there in Moab, they left their homeland of Bethlehem because there was a famine. And at the end of chapter one, we are returning to Bethlehem. Naomi and Ruth are returning to Bethlehem, and we learn that the harvest is beginning. That's like the very last verse of chapter one. There's a harvest beginning which is a sign that the famine is over, right? If there's a harvest, that means there's food in the fields. Things are turning around for Bethlehem. There is food in Bethlehem, and there's hope in the air for Naomi and Ruth. And the bottom line for this whole series, this whole you know, four-week conversation we're, have, 
we're having. It's a simple truth. It's all over scripture. We see it in a bunch of different ways. We see God taking care of Bethlehem by bringing an end to the famine. We see God taking care of Naomi through Ruth. And we'll see more of it today in Ruth chapter two. We keep seeing that God takes care of his people. This one bottom line for this whole series, God takes care of his people. We're going to watch a video and it's going to set the table for how God is going to take care of his people in Ruth chapter two. In chapter one, we learn about where Ruth came from. A man named Elimelech marries a woman named Naomi in the town of Bethlehem. They have two sons, and they all travel to Moab during a famine. Elimelech dies, and the two sons marry women from Moab. One marries Orpah, the other marries Ruth. Those two men die in Moab, and Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Chapter 2 begins with Ruth asking Naomi if she could go and glean from the fields. To glean means to go into other people's fields and gather the grain that was accidentally left behind by the harvest workers. This was generally done by the poor, the foreigner, and the widow. As Ruth is gleaning, she comes across a field belonging to a man named Boaz. He was a righteous man from the same clan as Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech, who had died. As Boaz is going through his fields, he notices Ruth and asks one of his workers about her. The man responds, She's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi. She asked if she could glean here and has been working since early morning, except for a short rest. Boaz then says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Stay and glean with the women here on these fields. Don't go to anyone else's. These men won't harm you, and when you are thirsty, you may drink the water that my workers have. Ruth falls to her face, bowing to him, and saying, Why have I found favor in your eyes? I'm a foreigner. Boaz responds, I've heard about your situation. I've heard that your husband has died, but that you chose to leave your family, friends, and country to stay with your mother-in-law in a foreign land. May the Lord bless you for this. Ruth is very thankful and goes back to gleaning. At mealtime, Boaz calls to her and brings her to the table of the workers to eat and drink with them. She ate until she was full and even had leftovers, which she saved. When she goes back to work, Boaz tells his workers to let her glean even in places that they haven't harvested, and don't rebuke her for it. He even tells them to leave some extra grains of wheat for her. At the end of the day, Ruth goes home with about an ephah of barley, which is about five and a half gallons, enough to feed two women for at least two weeks, and she tells Naomi about Boaz, the man who owns the field. Naomi informs her that Boaz is a close relative of theirs and tells Ruth to stay with Boaz and work only in that field. So Ruth gleaned in the field belonging to Boaz until the end of the harvest and continued living with her mother-in-law, Naomi. All right, that's Ruth chapter two. We're gonna tease it out, talk about it in, uh, in some more words as well. So Naomi and Ruth are now in Bethlehem and they're about to try and figure out how, what life is gonna look like. What are we gonna do now? Moab was, you know, we had life figured out in Moab, but now that we're back in Bethlehem, Naomi's back in Bethlehem, Ruth is in Bethlehem for the first time. How, what's our life gonna look like? They're starting a life in a new town. And they begin to figure it out. So last week we talked about um, how cool it was that Ruth stayed with Naomi, devoted to Naomi, gave a lot for Naomi. So Ruth, again, we focused on it last week, but I want you to remember, Ruth is a foreigner. 
She's from Moab. And Moab is like not a city known for being awesome. Moab is like a nasty place. And so for Ruth, for us to like look at Ruth and see like how good she is, how like her godly character, her chesed for her mother-in-law, we're supposed to be like, that's weird. We're supposed to say Ruth, a Moabite, doing good, having godly character, that's supposed to strike us as odd. So Ruth is from Moab, but she is a woman of godly character. And she stood up, she stepped up to take care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now they're in Bethlehem. They are poor. They are widowed. Ruth again, Ruth is a foreigner. In other words, money was tight. They didn't have many options at this point. So they have to figure out how are they going to eat in Bethlehem. So in Israel, God's people have been instructed by God to take care of people who don't have people. Something I've said many times. Because God takes care of his people, and because of God's love for us, we take care of people who don't have people. So this is where gleaning comes into play. So gleaning, um, the video defined gleaning as going into other people's fields and gathering grain that was left behind by the workers. Right? This was an old cultural thing that happened um, that God set up a system of gleaning. Now, these workers were instructed to leave some grain behind, leave some of the crops behind. And God set it up. He's describing to Israel, um, this, is what, this is what my people look like. When you follow me, this is what your city, your town, your, your community will look like. He said this in uh, Leviticus 19. God gives these directions about gleaning. When the harvest uh, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of the fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It's the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. So the instructions are to leave a couple rows at the end. If you drop something, don't pick it up, leave it where it fell and don't go through like super carefully and nitpicky like I would if I were picking grapes from, uh, from a field. Like I would make sure I got every single one. He says, don't do that. Just take what you need. And you know, if you miss a couple, that's what I want you to do, miss a couple. And then he explains why, this is a weird practice, right? <laughs> this is why are we leaving like meat on the bone for, uh, you know, per se? <laughs> why are we leaving some of our crops in the field? Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord, your God. So God sets up the system of gleaning to make sure that poor people, that widows and foreigners, rejected people in their community would be fed. They would have something to eat. They would have a way to be taken care of. And this is exactly what Ruth and Naomi are going to do. They meet those criteria. They're going to plug in and glean in a field. So Ruth is going to Bethlehem to find a field to glean in. And this is what it says in Ruth 2, 3. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. She's going to glean. And as it happened, pause this phrase, as it happened. This phrase is doing a lot of work here, and we're going to talk more about it. Don't miss this phrase. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative to her father-in-law, Elimelech. As it happened. This is like saying... Um, this is a phrase we still use. And it just so happened, right, that communicates a coincidence. The author of Ruth is trying to say, this is a coincidence. Like, I went to the store, and it just so happened that I saw my neighbor there, and I've been meaning to give him a call anyway, right? It's a coincidence that worked out for the good. But the way this is written, the way that an author in ancient Hebrew would speak and write, it's written with like a wink at the end. Like, and as it happened, wink, 
Do you see what he's doing? Or, or the writer is doing this. Um, this would be like when you wink at the end of a, it's a coincidence. This is like you and your bestie. You plan all day. You're like, all right, 1.30. You know, I have history and you have geometry. And uh, 1.30, we're going to meet at the bathroom so we can talk about how dumb our teachers are or whatever. Um, so you are, you, you know, you get out of a class, says, teacher, I have to go to the bathroom. And your other friend, right, teacher, I have to go to the bathroom. And you meet in the bathroom so that you can talk. It was a plan, right? And if your principal walked by and said, shouldn't you two be in class? You might say, I was going to the bathroom and it just so happened, wink, that I ran into my friend, so we were just catching up. Sorry, we're on our way. It just so happened. You wouldn't wink at your principal because that would be weird. But you get the idea, right? It's a planned coincidence. That's what the author of Ruth here is getting at. The author is trying to say, this is a planned coincidence. It looked like a coincidence, but there was a plan at work. So they're highlighting who planned it. They're highlighting the work of God in Ruth's life, in Ruth's story. It's another way to say God takes care of his people. It's a good time to mention that God does not plainly appear in the book of Ruth. Right? If you read the Bible, you're going to see him do some crazy things. The New Testament, you're going to see him come to earth as a person, as a man. But all throughout the Bible, we have burning bushes, we have seas being parted, we have talking donkeys. It's in there, I promise. We have all kinds of weird stuff where God shows up and speaks and does stuff and moves. In the book of Ruth, the author does not say that God does anything. This is as close as the author gets with this wink of a planned coincidence. And it's a reminder, a highlight, that even when a bush isn't speaking to us or a sea isn't parting or no one's walking on water, that God is still at work in our everyday lives. That God is still doing things. He's moving pieces around subtly, um, making differences in our lives. It might even look like a coincidence, but it's God. Some people would say, some, some Christ followers would say that there's no such thing as coincidences. I think sometimes things just happen, but I'm sure that more often than I'm aware, what I think is a coincidence is God making something happen. To give me an opportunity, to give someone else an opportunity. It's, it's God, it's a planned coincidence. It just so happened, wink, that God set it up this way. Just yesterday, Sam had a really great as-it-happened moment. She was going to have coffee with a friend um, just last night, and they had been trying to get together for like some time. She, like, they had like pitched a couple different places. They had to change their day and their time that they were going to hang out. It was get, getting difficult for them to like get together. They finally made it happen last night. They went to Wilkesbury for coffee. And outside of the place they were going to coffee for, there was a young man, a 21-year-old guy, who had just gotten out of prison the day before. And he had nothing. Speak of a foreigner, right? His family was out of town, and he didn't want to go back there because he didn't want to fall back into stuff that he was you know, getting into. And so he was just looking for a meal. He said, I'm hungry, and I hate to bother you, but do you care to maybe uh, give me some money for a meal or a coffee or whatever? And he had nothing. He had no one. And God's people take care of people who don't have people. So Sam and her friends sprung into action, and they started by buying him a meal. Uh, they went to mission. It was like a good meal, a good barbecue meal as well. And <laughs> that's right, he didn't like it, but it was a, it was a good meal either way. Um, they took him shopping for like clothes and snacks. And then they sat with him for over two hours, calling as many shelters as they could get a hold of to make sure he had somewhere to sleep because the night before he slept on the street and they knew what temperature it was going to get to last night. And so they took the time, um, they canceled stuff and were late to stuff and made changes to their, their schedule. They were disrupted so that they could make sure that this guy had somewhere to sleep in a warm room. They knew the people to call. They made it happen. And last night, Quan slept in a shelter and he has food and community and he has what he needs. He's taken care of. 
because God's people take care of people who don't have people. Now, that's a really nice story about how to care for people who don't have people and about how great Sam is at listening to God's voice and obeying what he says. But I want to draw your attention to the, and as it happened, element of this story. They were in the right place at the right time, and it was not a coincidence that they were able to be used that way. I believe God orchestrated that situation. Sam, that's how she pitched the story to me. God orchestrated this situation to give Sam and her friend an opportunity to be used by God and give Quan an opportunity to be warm and fed last night. I want to draw your attention to the as-it-happened moments of your life. When you look back on your life, the things you've been through and the, the people you've met, the things that have happened to you, some were coincidences, sure. But which of those things might have been God? Just consider it. Which of those things were God subtly nudging and moving and orchestrating your life in a direction that he wanted? I think we would all be well served to more often take time to recognize the way God is at work in our daily lives. Could that be the end of our conversation tonight? It could. It's not. There's more of chapter two to go through. So as it happened, Ruth ends up gleaning in the fields of a man named Boaz. The author explains the irony of the situation, the as-it-happened wink. Um, the author explains the not-so-coincidence that Boaz is a relative of Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech. They didn't know each other, but her Ruth's late husband was related to Boaz. So we're going to come back next week to why that's so important. Um, but for now, let's just enjoy meeting Boaz because Boaz rocks. Okay, we know right off the bat, Boaz is an influential man. He treats his employees with respect and dignity, which was not a value of the time. It's not a value of our time, you know, often anyway. Uh, but, you know, some organizations are making this a value, treating employees with dignity and respect. Boaz did that. He, you read Ruth chapter two and you'll see him speaking highly of his employees, talking to them, making sure that they're taken care of. And so he's great. He's got this godly character. Boaz is consistently uh, a godly character. And on top of it all, he's rich. So Boaz sees a beautiful young lady gleaning in his field. He knows like what that means that someone is gleaning in his field. And he does what every man does when they catch feelings. And he Googles her. And in ancient Near Eastern Bethlehem, Googling is a little different. And it, it was a small town, and he was just, you know, asking people, hey, do you know that girl? What's her story? So he finds out. It doesn't take him long to put together Ruth's story to see who she is and what she's done and how she ended up in Bethlehem. So at this point, Boaz goes to introduce himself to Ruth. This could be threatening. Um, I could see, and I wasn't there, and, and I don't know. But um, there were less like police and accountability in the world <laughs> at the time. So people did messed up stuff and got away with it all the time. So this man, this owner of the field coming up to Ruth could have been a really threatening situation. But the way Boaz carries himself and speaks and honors Ruth shows what he's about. And Ruth does not, she, it does, the, okay, the book of Ruth does not record her being afraid. I'll put it that way. The moral of the story is it turned out okay. She could have been afraid at some point, but Boaz shows that she doesn't have to. In this interaction, Boaz, his number one priority is making sure that Ruth is a safe, valued, and provided for. Safe, valued, and provided for. Gentlemen, take notes. Uh, we could make this a dating series. We're not going to, but Boaz was awesome. So Boaz says, listen, I know what gleaning means. I know what that means about you. You stay in my fields because there are some messed up people. My neighbors are crazy, and they, I don't know what, you could get, what they could get into with you gleaning their fields. Stay in my fields, and you have my word that you'll be safe. 
You could, there could be violence you could be taken advantage of. So stay in my fields. You have my word that you'll be safe. On top of that, he says, help yourself to the water cooler I have for my employees. <laughs> help yourself to the water. And then he invites her to lunch as well. Like he provides lunch for his, his workers. And he says, come enjoy a meal with us. So Ruth thanks Boaz for his hospitality. She says, what I've been saying, Boaz, you're awesome. And she asks, why are you so awesome? Why are you being so kind to me? And he tells her he heard about Ruth's story. He knows what she had, her devotion to Naomi, her chesed for Naomi. And he says, um, I just wanted to make sure that your devotion and your godly character is acknowledged. And before lunch, he prays a blessing over her in Ruth 2.12. He says, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. He prays that God will reward her and he also takes care of her. And this will not be the last time that Boaz is the answer to his own prayer. Tune in next week. Okay, all of this, all of Boaz's kindness crescendos into Boaz sending Ruth home for the night with two weeks worth of food for her and Naomi. Very generous. Um, he knows that Ruth, what Ruth's doing. She's caring for you know her mother-in-law who doesn't have anyone to take care of her. And he wants to make sure that they're both fed. Another pause for me to say, this is what wealth looks like in the kingdom of God. Um, I think our culture has a warped view of money and what, how to get it and what you do once you get it. Um, often God's people don't look very different from the world when they get a lot of money. We are called to sacrificially, generously live um, with open hands. God has given us everything we have. And so we live with our hands open and, and we bless people and we're, we sacrifice and we're generous. Um, and Boaz shows us here, Jesus is going to teach us that on the cross later in history. And that's what we're called to do today. Just a side note. So Ruth brings all of this food, two weeks worth of food home for her and Naomi. At this point, Naomi asks Ruth, where you been all day? And she finds out that she's been hanging out with Boaz. And she says, ah, I know that guy. Because remember, Naomi's late husband, Elimelech, was related to Boaz. And she says, I know that guy. Stay in his fields, keep this situation up, and you'll be safe in his fields. And in response to Boaz's generosity, this is what Naomi says in Ruth 2.20. This is what said is coming. May the Lord bless him. This is Naomi blessing Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us, as well as to your dead husband, honoring our family. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. We've been through a lot tonight already. So we'll save family redeemers for next week. It's going to be the main idea for next week. But let's talk about showing his kindness. This word kindness is our chesed. We've spotted chesed. It's all through Boaz's character. It's a, the chesed of Boaz um, is God taking care of Naomi and Ruth. God takes care of his people, and he takes care of Naomi and Ruth through Boaz. They are vulnerable, defenseless, and he sends Boaz to take care of them. At this time, he uses all kinds of people all throughout history and scripture, and today, this time he used Boaz. This is love. This is chesed, a love that drives to action. Now, chesed is a Hebrew word. We're getting Bible nerdy, and, and that's okay. The Old Testament written in Hebrew. Um, the New Testament written in Greek, so we don't have any chesed in the New Testament because it's a totally different language. Like there's no love in the Hebrew because that's an English word, right? So in the New Testament, we see God's chesed. 
Even though we don't have the word, we see chesed all throughout the sacrifice of Jesus is the ultimate example. If it were written in Hebrew, we might see chesed in maybe the most famous verse ever, John 3, 16, for this is how God showed his love for the world. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God's love for his creation, the world, us, his love, his chesed is what drove him to the cross. He endured betrayal from friends, violence, and death in a humiliating way so that we could have closeness with God, so that we could be reconciled, so that our relationship could be fixed with God. Chesed is what drove him there. Boaz was required by law to let a widow glean in his fields, but he went above and beyond the law. Jesus went above and beyond the law for us to show chesed to us. God takes care of his people. That's what he does. Jesus showed us that on the cross. And now he, he uses us to take care of people who don't have people. Sam's chesed drove her to help Quan last night. Boaz was driven to action by his love, his godly character. His chesed caused him to take care of vulnerable people. And that's what God's people do. You're going to talk about exactly what that looks like for you in your small groups. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is that that's what we do. God's people take care of people who don't have people. When you make a decision to follow Jesus, when you make a commitment to, to make your life like Jesus's life, that's what we do. You probably won't have to die on a cross for anyone, but you will daily make sacrifices of time and money and energy, time that you'd rather spend doing something else. You will make sacrifices to take care of vulnerable people when you're following Jesus. There's a New Testament letter written by James the brother of Jesus, he wrote this letter to um, new Christ followers all over the area. And he says this in James 1:27: pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. At the time, orphans and widows were like the most in distress people in their society. And James teaches us that following Jesus means taking care of people who don't have people. True religion is reaching out to the rejected. Orphans and widows are people that we need to take care of. You might not know any orphans and widows, and that's okay because there are certainly people in distress, rejected people in distress in your world. The kid at school who doesn't have any friends. The man on the side of the road with a sign that says how hungry he is. The woman with a crying baby in a stroller and another on her hip. There are people in our world, in your world, who need provided for, who need taken care of, who need to see God in you and experience God's chesed, experience God's love through you. It provoked Jesus to the cross. It provoked Boaz to take care of Naomi and Ruth. It provokes us to reach out to the rejected people in our world. God takes care of his people, and we take care of people. His people take care of people who don't have people. True religion is reaching out to the rejected. So let's ask God tonight how we can do that. Let's ask God to use us to take care of the people around us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what we can learn from Ruth's story, from Boaz's experience, and um, the way that we can get closer to you through what we learn here. God, I ask that you would help us um, to remember that you take care of your people. And as we remember that we are taken care of, we can use that security. We can use that, um, that assurance to know that we don't come from a place of scarcity. You take care of us so well that we can be generous and take care of other people. 
We can take care of people who don't have people. We can reach out to the rejected people in our world. So God, I ask that you would remind us that that is what Jesus' followers do. That's what we do when we make a commitment to you. And I pray that every person in this, in this room would start to think of who those people in their lives are. Who are the people? Who are the rejected, the orphans and the widows in their lives? And how would you have us show the chesed you have shown us? How can we show that to the people around us so that they experience you through our love for them? We do that because you take care of us. So we take care of others. I pray you give us opportunities this week to do that and you would be that voice in our head that reminds us that your people take care of people. We love you. We worship you. It's in your precious name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to this Apex Student Podcast. You can listen to more Apex teachings by subscribing on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We pray that this message has impacted your life and that you don't walk away without looking a little bit more like Jesus. 